Yesterday, my uh, daughter, Nessia, was playing in a soccer tournament. And uh, I was thinking about the job of a coach. The job of a coach when you have this uh, soccer tournament going on. Look, would you please close the door to the outside? Getting uh, blinded there. <laughs> and uh, what's the job of a coach during a game? Anybody? Okay, organize his team. Lead them to victory. Good, that's all good. Maybe one more. <laughs> I think part of it, if I if I remember the game yesterday, is also encouraging the team. Right? Have you heard of the word pep talk? giving them a pep talk, right? Usually you try to kind of steer them up a little bit. Sometimes you're seeing them playing on the field and it looks like they need a little bit of encouragement. You shout some words of encouragement to them. That's what uh, we have for us today in God's Word as we're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. As uh, you may recall, uh, the Hebrews, uh, the letter is written to people who seems to be struggling, Right? And uh, sometimes that happens in a game, a soccer game. Your team might be struggling a little bit. Maybe you're a couple of goals behind. And you're kind of getting kind of discouraged. And you need some encouragement. So, Lord willing, that's what we have for us today in God's Word. Um, wanted to think just a little bit about the race that we're in. Um, we do have our, our key verse for the book. Did anybody uh, memorize it and want to recite it for us today? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. All right, I'll have to punish you all with the usual punishment, which means we'll read it together. See if we can pull it up okay. Therefore, we also... Thank you. I wanted to think a little bit about uh, what it is that God has for us in this world. We use the word running the race. What, what race is it that we are part of as believers, right? What is it that God wants us to join in and participate and run with endurance, as we read in that verse? And uh, I thought, the thought that came to me is in uh, Matthew 16, uh, verses 18 and 19, uh, this is a familiar passage. Maybe I'll be using it a little bit differently than we sometimes do. It says, uh, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And usually we, we look to this verse for various reasons, one of them being that it's God's promise that he will build his church. Right? That's God's work. He told Peter... I will build my church. We often ignore the following verses where Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth uh, 
will be loosed in heaven. And uh, this verse, that verse has been used uh, in various ways, some of which are inappropriate. But very clearly, Jesus is here telling Peter that he has a very important role to play in the building of the kingdom of God. And it's not just to Peter. Actually, I don't know that he was even speaking to Peter directly. I think he was speaking to all the apostles. It's something that was given to all of us. We are all part of God's work of building his church. Now, we do recognize that it's God ultimately that's doing it. We, we can't take the credit for ourselves. But God chose to involve us. He chose to involve Peter. He chose to involve the apostle. And he chose to involve you and me in that greatest project of all the ages, which is building the church of God. And uh, so that's what we're part of. If we're thinking of ourselves as being in some sort of a team, in some sort of a race, in some sort of a, of a uh, contest, it's that particular work of building the kingdom of God. And it's not just limited to saving souls, it also includes building believers in their most holy faith, right? Building us up, making us more like Christ, okay? So we're not talking only about saving people, but certainly people getting saved is part of building God's kingdom, so that would be included. Okay, with that, let's go to today's passage. Uh, I'll read it in halves. We have a first half. Uh, we're in Hebrews 12, verses uh, 12 through 14, and then... Uh, later on, we'll read the second half of the passage, verse 15 through 17. So first, Hebrews 12, 12 through 14. Therefore, brethren, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So first, I need a couple of illustrations here. Joey and Nessia, would you come up here, please? All right, I'd like you to face the audience, please. And show me what it looks like to have your hands hanging down and your knees feeble. All right, now imagine... You know, you're a coach in a soccer game. You're looking at your players, and they look like that. <laughs> All right. Now show me what does it mean to strengthen the hands that hang down in the field. What does it mean to strengthen your hands and your knees? <laughs> right. So now they're in a position when, where they're ready to play, right? You know, now they're ready for the ball to come their way. They're in the game, right, so to speak. All right, thank you very much. You guys can go and sit down. Now, what the situation, situation here, as I read it, is, is the, the Hebrew church, right? So these are Jewish believers in Jesus. Uh, they're kind of in that first state, right, with the hands hanging down and the knees feeble. And, and you could understand why. So you can sympathize. We, we shouldn't be looking down at them, right? They're representing us, like it or not, right? The letter was written to them, and we recognize it's written to us, too. They were discouraged. Why were they discouraged? Well, for one thing, they've been under persecution for a number of years, right? They've, had, uh, they've been abused in some ways. They had their possessions taken from them. Some of them have been thrown in prison, right? So that's one kind of discouragement. And the other is people have left, turned away, fallen away somehow from their profession in Christ. So imagine we start 
you know, the persecution with maybe 100 people in our church, and now we're down to 50, right? 50 people we, we thought were believers or at least interested and coming, and what seemed like a flourishing, grow, you know, flourishing church is now kind of dwindled as a result of this persecution, right? You can understand why they're discouraged, right? But the word of, of the author to them is to strengthen, right? It's really a change of state, state of mind more than anything else, right? You're here one moment like this, and the next moment if you're encouraged, all right, now I'm ready for what might come at me. Right? It's a change of attitude, and that's the first thing that the coach needs to see in his team. And if you're writing notes, uh, the first key to, uh, to uh, encouraging your team here or, or to be encouraged in, in the contest is, is to, to play your heart out. You're, you're here... I'm here to, to do my best, right? And that's part of the Christian life. If you want to live the life that God wants for you, the first thing you need is the right attitude. I am here to live out the Christian life to the full, right? <laughs> Not halfway. Uh, there's a verse in uh, Colossians 3.23 made me think of it. It says, and whatever you do, do it heartedly, literally with your heart, Right? That's what, the way God wants us to live. Right? And that's, that's the first key, really, for living the Christian life here. The second, it says, and make straight path for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated. So I have a picture for you. Does that look familiar to anyone? Yeah. <laughs> what is that, Joey? <laughs> What is it, Joy? It's our playroom. That's right. You cleaned it up. It doesn't look like that right now. Yeah, Joy did a good job. In fact, all my children did a good job cleaning it yesterday. But before they did, I clicked. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you can understand why the playroom would look like that some of the time. But that's not the way you want your soccer field to look like. Right? That would be kind of a hazard if you had to play on a field like that. So if you're taking notes, the second key to, to playing, uh, you know, for your team to play well is to play on a clear field. Play on a clear field. Uh, some years ago, I, I always made it a priority to try to find a job with a minimum commute from, from where I lived, right? I, don't, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on the road. And, uh, but, you know, one... You know, at, at a particular point, I had a, an offer I couldn't refuse, a company that offered me more money. So uh, I, I accepted it, and uh, that extended, increased my commute from about 15 minutes each way to about 30 minutes each way, probably a little bit more on the way back in the afternoon. And uh, I wanted something to do during that time, right? I'm just sitting in the car for an hour a day, and uh, I forget whether it was me or my wife that found some books on tapes. And, and so I got those, and I started listening to those. And they were very entertaining. I mean, I literally, I would get in my car, you know, start it on, turn on the tape player. And uh, it seemed like no time at all when I was at the other side, getting out of the car. Sometimes it was almost scary. What happened? Because <laughs> I was so into that story. But these stories did not have any spiritual value. They were about some soldier fighting in a war or something. 
uh, of that sort. They were very entertaining, but not very edifying. And uh, I often had to really try to remind myself of the things of God after that. I found I completely forgot about the Lord during that time. And I wasn't, as I was thinking about the story during the day, I was not thinking about the Lord. That was not playing in a clear playing field. I had an obstacle in my life. Then one day I got an email from um, a friend of mine. I think some of you know him, Don Blosser from uh, Fairhaven. And he sent an email, not just to me, it was kind of a mass email, but he had in it a link for a, for a sermon, online sermon. And I listened to it, and uh, it was a sermon about revival. And it really stirred my heart. And as a result, I went to that website to see if there were other sermons at that website about revival, and, and there were. So I downloaded maybe 50 of them onto a CD. And, and the wonderful thing... Uh, about technology today is you have this thing called MP3 files. So it used to be you could only put an hour roughly of audio on a CD. Now you can have 50 hours or probably more. And so I had these 50 sermons on a CD and, and when I was driving to work, I was listening to sermons. And that completely transformed my life. Now instead of spending that one hour a day thinking about, really not thinking, I was spending that hour thinking about the things of God. And it doesn't have to be sermons over the years. I changed to listen to, to some Christian books or biographies of uh, missionaries. Or I used that time uh, to recite verses or to pray. And, and that's, that really changes my life, changed my life. And, and that's what the author is talking about here when he says, make straight path for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. If I want to live my Christian life out, if I want to play well, so to speak, I have to remove these obstacles from my life, right? And rather have things in my life that point me to the Lord. Okay, third, third encouragement here, or third point in this uh, spiritual pep talk the author is giving them. It says, pursue peace with all people. Now, when I think of the word pursue, I think of that picture out there, right? That's cheetah pursuing that gazelle or whatever kind of animal that is. You know, he is very focused, or it is very focused. The cheetah is very focused on what it's doing. It doesn't just want the gazelle. It's putting itself 100% into catching that gazelle. It's a goal it's going after with all its might. And in the same way, we're told here to pursue peace with all people. It's something that we talked about at the breaking of bread. God wants us to have peace with people. I call it, my, my third point is called run in the right direction, right? When, when you have your teammates on the field, sometimes, you know, they're, they're kicking the ball in the wrong direction. They're running, you know, turn around. You guys got to move toward the right goal. And the, the right goal for us is peace. It says this in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself, talking about the Lord Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. It's talking about the fact that the Lord Jesus here united the Jews and the Gentiles. So you may have people that annoy you or did something that hurt you, 
But there was never a division such as the Jew versus Gentile division. That was, that was the, the uh, division that brought about the most hatred uh, in the world, at least in the ancient world. And yet here we're told that Jesus brought both one. He himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Most of you probably have heard that word, shalom. Literally, it means a state of wholeness or perfection. And that is what God created us for. He created us for peace. We are to have, first and foremost, peace with him, right? God wanted us to have peace with him, and that's why the Lord Jesus came, to reconcile us to God, to give us that perfect relationship with God. But he also wanted us to have this peace or perfect relationship with each other. In the Bible, someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And we would all agree with that, but he didn't stop there. He continued in saying, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put it at the same level, amazingly, right? Our relationship with one another was somehow at the same level of importance as his relationship to us. He wanted both to have peace. And if God's desire is for peace, people to have peace with him, and for us to have peace with one another, then that's something that we should be pursuing, like that cheetah chasing that gazelle, 100%. What did it want? It wanted a gazelle. Why should we want peace with all people? Right? That's the message. So, okay. So, we, I, I could stop there, but then I'm not doing justice to the word pursue. It's not about just wanting it's about doing what you need to do to get it. The cheetah knew what it needed, he needed to do. He needed to run with full speed to catch that animal. We need to exert all our effort in order to have peace with people. How do we do that? We have uh, at least three cases, three things in the Bible that are in, we're instructed to do. The first is Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So this is taken from uh, the days where there was a temple in Jerusalem, and if you were a religious Jew, you would make an effort and leave your town and, and bring with you maybe an animal or some other gift you had for God, and you travel the distance, and now you are at the temple, and uh, you're standing in line because there's other people who want to offer their gifts to and finally you get to the altar, and this is where you're going to offer your gift before God. And Jesus says, if there you remember that somebody has something against you, right then comes to your mind the fact that, yeah, before uh, you left... You, uh, you know, scratch your neighbor's car. 
and uh, well, they didn't have a car in those days. He's caught, and uh, you, you know, your neighbor saw you, and he was kind of upset with you, and he said, you know, sorry, I gotta go, right? And but right there, the Lord is bringing it to your mind, and you know what He says? Leave it there. You made all the effort to bring your your gift to the altar. Leave it there. I don't want it. You go back and make things right with your neighbor, which at the very least is going to be a sincere apology and maybe, you know, repainting his cart or whatever you have to do to make up for what you did, you know, before God wants your gift, right? So what's the practical application to us? If you've done anything that hurt somebody, if you know someone was offended by something you did, you need to make it priority number one to go and make it right with that person, Right? If you're pursuing peace with all people, that's part of it. Going back and making it right with that person. Number two, again, looking for practical ways of of being at peace, pursuing peace with all people. Let's reverse the equation. Let's say you're the person whose cart got scratched, right? And uh, somebody comes and he offers an apology. And say, I'm very sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And you say, you know what? This is not the first time you did this to me. In fact, I can think of several times you did this to me. You know, how am I to forgive you when you keep doing it? And uh, Peter was very, felt very spiritual one day, and he said this to Jesus. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. All right, any uh, anyone, sharp, sharp uh, children in the audience? Joey, what's uh, 70 times seven? Uh, almost, yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry? 490 times. All right, very good. So I should start keeping count, right? If you've done this, you scratched my card, that's number one. <laughs> now, I, I don't think we'll get to 490, right? right? I, I think the Lord Jesus said, you know, you should keep forgiving. You should keep forgiving. Someone did something to you and it hurt you, but they come to you and they apologize, then, then minister forgiveness to them. Forgive them for what they have done, right? Allow yourself to be reconciled to them. Right? That's part of pursuing peace. Right? And then uh, the third one, what if, what if I'm the guy with the scratch cut and, and this guy never comes and apologizes to me? Right? In fact, he seems to be doing it on purpose because he keeps doing it. Right? And then he smirks. Right? I mean, you know this guy is just after you. Right? What should you do in that case? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 12, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
What should you be doing in this case? Well, what the passage says is we should not avenge my, ourselves. I shouldn't go and, and scratch his cart in return. Right? Instead, if I see that he has a need, like he's hungry or thirsty, I'm to bring him my food and my drink and provide for him. Right? That's what the passage is saying. You have somebody who is deliberately trying to hurt you, but what are you supposed to do? You're trying, you, you should deliberately try to be kind to him. Right? That's what the passage is. That's pursuing peace. Right? Like that cheetah was chasing that gazelle. I'm going to do everything I can to be at peace with this person. And it says that uh, that will be heaping coals of fire on his head. My understanding of that, I mean, he'll feel bad. What? I've been scratching your cart on purpose day after day, and you're providing for me drink and food when I need it. Right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how you win people. Right? When you're kind to them in spite of them being unkind to you. Pursuing peace with all people. Running in the right direction. All right. The fourth key um, to, uh, to playing the game well I have is listen to your coach. Listen to your coach. Here it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And uh, I'm kind of thinking of, uh, you know, a player may not be doing quite the right thing, right? You know, we might be, um, you know, running after the ball instead of, you know, holding our spot where we need to be, right? Or we might be holding onto the ball and dribbling it instead of passing to the other players. And the coach is telling us, I want you to do this. You need to change what you're doing and play this way. And, uh, and we have to listen to, to, to win the game. We're going to have to listen to what the coach is saying to us. Now, in this case, it's a little bit different. He, he wants holiness from us. Uh, I used to be a young man and uh, was... Uh, interested in a young lady, and uh, most of you know who that was, and I, we started dating, and then I became a believer, and uh, the Lord started speaking to me, saying, you know, you need to break off the relationship. This young lady was also a believer, but that relationship wasn't of him. It didn't start the way God wanted it to, and it, it wasn't going in the way God wanted it to, so he was in different ways, you know, speaking to me, whether it was reading the scripture or something believers were saying to me that this is not what he wanted me to be doing. Uh, and then uh, we went to uh, a wedding, a Christian wedding, and it was just so clear in that case that it was God who brought those two people together that that was kind of the last straw. I knew I was out of the will of God in my relationship with this young girl. And uh, so we finally broke off the relationship. Said so we need to stop doing it. And uh, it was such a cleansing that I sensed at that time because I was now finally in the will of the Lord. All this time the Lord was working on me and I wasn't giving in to him. I was holding on to my sin and now finally I was willing to let it go. Right? And, and I, I, I felt like I was walking on cloud nine. You know, really enjoying fellowship with God. Right? I remember uh, meeting with some friends on campus. I was a student in Berkeley at the time. And uh, telling them, you know what? I just realized 
God wants us to live a life without sin in it. And, and we can really do it. We can really live a life without sin. And one of them, uh, kind of an older person who I think was, was leading a study group, said, you know what? Noah, let me tell you something. <laughs> you know, our sin is kind of like a, a, a glacier or an uh, iceberg. We can show the picture. And the truth is there's only a little bit of it that's above the surface, Right? And God is shining his light on that sin. He's showing us this sin in our life, right? It doesn't belong in our life. And eventually, God's word, if, if we're willing, you know, will melt that ice away. We'll get rid of that sin, right? It's really God's work to remove sin from us, but, uh, or give us victory over sin, but we have to be willing, right? We have to be willing to let go of it. But you know what happens when that ice on top disappears? The iceberg goes up. <laughs> and more sin reveals itself. And the same was true in my life. I was far from, free, far from being free from sin. Right? There was still sin in my life to start with pride. Right? Going and telling people, oh, I, don't, you know, I can live a life without sin. Right? There was something a little bit confused in that person, if not prideful. Um, but, but that's the way it is. So, so when we're talking about pursuing holiness... What we're really talking is about listening to the coach, listening to God as God reveals some sin in your life to be willing to put it away. Say, God, I hear you. You're speaking to me about this thing I'm doing that you don't want me to do. You know, I, I'm listening. I'll, I'll, I'll stop doing it. I'll do what I need to do to put that sin away. Right? And then allow, you know, the iceberg to come up, and as God reveals something else to you, then work on that, right? It's, it's a process that will take a lifetime, right? We don't expect that we will ever be completely free of sin on this side of eternity, but you know what? As you're allowing God to work on you, now God can work through you. And that's what I believe he says here when he says, pursue Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You want to see God working in your life. You want to see God using you. You want to see the evidence of God. Right? Well, that comes as we are willing to let him work in our lives. You want the coach to put you in the game, you better listen to what the coach is saying. Right? Otherwise, you're going to be on the bench. So... So listen to the coach. Pursue holiness. Jesus said this in John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We need to listen to the coach. Okay, this brings us to the second half of our message, Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. And again, this is part of the advice that the coach is giving here. He says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit a blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. 
though he sought it diligently with tears. This is the last advice that the coach is giving us here. He says, know your teammates. Soccer is a team game, and uh, you have to learn to play together, right? Is that true, Nessie? Right? Yeah, you have to pass you know, to a teammate, counter them passing back the ball to you, or shooting, or doing the right thing, right? You're playing together as a team. The same thing about the Christian life. It's a team sport, right? I mean, it's not a sport, right? We're building the kingdom of God. This is the most important project in all the universe for all of eternity, but it's still something that's being done as a team. We're connected to one another, right? We're relying on one another, and because of that, it's important to know who your teammates are. And yes, yeah, what will happen if you pass the ball to someone from the other team? <laughs> your teammates will get mad at you. But your team probably won't do very well. Right? You need to know who your teammates are. And uh, that's what really the, the author is here exhorting us to do, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Falling short of the grace of God simply means you've never been saved, right? You're not a recipient of the grace of God. It's a person who hasn't been born again. Now, they were probably in the church, right? So when the church was flourishing at that time, you know, people were interested and they came in. It's exciting, right? It's a place where people are getting saved and their lives are being changed and uh, they're enjoying the love of the saints. It's an exciting place and it draws unbelievers, and they become interested, and maybe they'll become saved. You know, it's a wonderful thing to, to be something that God can use to bring people to himself. But now, at this particular time, people are starting to fall away because the church is under persecution, there's discouragement, and, uh, and you, the people that you were trusting in and relying upon might turn out not to be true believers. And it leaves you kind of in a difficult place. And that's why it says you need to watch carefully. You need to be able to assess, uh, to assess whether someone is, is a true believer, a regenerate person, or whether they fall short of the grace of God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't welcome unbelievers. We welcome, we love them. We'd like them to come. We'd like them to hear the word of God. And we're praying for them to be saved, right? So it doesn't mean a negative attitude toward unbelievers. But we need to know as believers who we can trust and who we can look to as an example. Look at the following section. It says, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What is this root of bitterness? Most commentators refer to a verse in Deuteronomy. That's why it's good to know your Bible or to have some good commentaries. Deuteronomy 29, 18 says, so that there may not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. So in this passage, the root of bitterness is equated to a person who is deciding not to follow the Lord. Now, he still appears to be one of God's people, right? They were all Hebrews. And yet, this was a person who, was in his heart, wasn't following God. The problem here is, it says, is by, by this many become defiled. If you have someone in your congregation, 
and they start not following the Lord, but now let's say you are kind of looking up to that person, uh, and, and you see them doing things that are not really good. Maybe they're watching the wrong kind of movies. They're going to the wrong kinds of places. And you might start thinking, well, it's okay for me to do that too. If they can do it, I can do it too. Right? And it kind of leads the church downhill. And that's what, why it's so important to be able to recognize, is this a regenerate person? Is this part of the team? Or is it an unbeliever? It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we're not praying for them and wanting the best for them, but we don't rely on them and we don't look at them as examples. We're not going to follow what it is that they're doing. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. It's interesting that the word fornicator and profane person are equated in this passage. If you look at how they're being used together, and I, I spent some time thinking about that, and I'd like to share my thoughts about the connection. A profane person who is a person who treats sacred things with abuse and irreverence. That's the dictionary definition. I take something that might be holy, something that, that has a spiritual value, but I'm treating it as if it has no spiritual value, right? That would be a profane person will often assign that to a person who's taking God's name in vain. We'll say they're being profane. Why? Because God is holy. God's name is holy. And the person is using it for an unholy purpose. That's why we're saying they're being profane. But it can apply to other things. In this case, it's applied to uh, a person who is a fornicator. A fornicator is a person who has a sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. Right? God created the sexual relationship to be used within the marriage covenant, when you're doing it outside of it, then you would be called a fornicator. Why is that profanity? Well, because our bodies are holy. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. 13b says, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God gave us this body for himself to be used for him. Our body is holy because it's designed to be used by God. If I instead take it and I'm being involved in sexual immorality, I'm taking something holy and I'm using it in an unholy way. Right? That makes me a profane person. Going on, in the same passage, it says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So again, our body is holy. It's the temple of God. The Holy Spirit comes and resides inside of our body. So we don't want to take our body and use it in an improper way, right? Instead of using it for God, which is what he wants us to do. Now, we have the example of Esau here. It says, lest there be any fornication or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. What is it that Esau 
did that made him a profane person. We have it in Genesis 25, the story for us. It says, Jacob cooked a stew, and Isa came from the field, and he was weary. And Isa said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his, his name was called Edom. So here's the scene we have. Uh, Isa spent all day outside looking for his gazelle, and he didn't catch it. But he comes home, he's tired, he's very hungry, and here comes, here's Jacob. Jacob didn't go out to hunt. He realized there was food available. There was lentils to be had and uh, bread. And so he instead cooked a nice meal, and now Isa comes and he wants to eat, right? I mean, we can understand that. I think we have a picture of Isa. We <laughs> can understand him, him uh, you know, wanting to get something to eat. Well, Jacob is seizing here an opportunity and uh, he says, uh, sell me your birthright as of this day. Well, what was Esau's birthright? Well, he is the firstborn son of Isaac. If you remember, Isaac was the son of Abraham. God gave his blessing to Abraham, and he told Abraham, in your seed all the nation will be blessed. Out of your body will come a son, and through that son I will bless the entire world. Right? And we understand that that was because through that son was going to come the Messiah who was going to be the blessing of the entire world. Right? So now Isaac was very specifically the recipient of that blessing. God makes that very clear. Well, now Esau, as the oldest son of Isaac, would have been next in line. He could have been the one through whom God was going to bless the entire world. Right? That's quite a blessing. Right? That's quite an inheritance, quite a birthright. And Jacob said... Well, you want some of my food? Sell me your birthright. What should Esau do? Should he give his, the right of inheriting God's blessing to Jacob in order for him to have that pot of, uh, of food? Or should he say, no, that's, you know, that's, that would be too high of a price. I'm not giving my birthright for anything. Right? That would have been the right answer. But that's not what happened Isa said, look, I am about to die. I don't think he was about to die. That's my personal opinion. But Isa said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. That is, swear to me you're giving me your birthright. So he swore to him. He made an oath saying, you, you know, are now the right heir of God's promise. Give me that food. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He took something that was holy, and he said, this is not worth more than a pot of food. Give me the food. Right? Now the danger was that the Hebrews were in a similar state. Right? They had the promise of God's blessing. They were the ones through whom God was going to bless the entire world, right? We are part of God's work of building his kingdom, saving souls from an eternity in hell to an eternity in heaven, glorifying God, being transformed to the image of his son. There is nothing greater than that. And, uh, and yet some of them said, you know, 
I, I would rather have something else, right? I, I don't like this persecution. I don't like this, you know, discouragement in the church. You know, here I have an opportunity to do something more fun. So, sorry guys, you won't see me on Sundays anymore because there's something else that I'd rather do than living the life of a Christian. Right? It's the same thing. It's saying there's something more valuable than what God has going on here. Let me tell you, there's nothing more valuable than what God has going on here. But that's a decision some people in the Hebrew church were making. They were turning away from that. Okay. Then finally, we have here what I perceive as a warning. It says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau at some point had some sort of a change of mind, right? Seems like at that moment he was completely willing to let go of his, his birthright, right? This spiritual blessing that God had for him. Later on, he seemed to have this change of mind because he wanted it. And uh, Esau, Isaac sends him to the field. He says, go catch me a venison, you know, whatever venison come from, I guess a deer. And, uh, you know, prepare me some savory food and I'll eat it and I'll bless you. Right? And Rebecca, Isaac's wife, hears this, and she doesn't want him to bless Esau. She can tell that Esau has no, no interest in spiritual things. And so she encourages Jacob to trick his father, come as if he was Esau, and receive the, the blessings instead. And so Isaac, being tricked, gives Jacob the blessing. And then Esau comes late, and you know, offers the food and says, okay, where's my blessing? And Isaac is like, sorry, I gave it away. Right? And you would think, well, Isa, you didn't really care about it at all. You know, it shouldn't matter to you. Say, oh, well, I guess I'll do with that. Right? I mean, you think he would, but that's not how he responds. It says, Genesis 27, 34, when Isa heard the words of his father... He cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. And a few verses later, And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He really wanted it at that point. And yet we are told that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It was too late for Esau. I uh, used to uh, work with Jews for Jesus. Some of you know that from years past. And one of the things I was doing with them is a street evangelism. So that means... You kind of pass out tracts to people, and, uh, and you try to engage them in conversation and share the gospel with them. And if a person seems like he's ready to receive the Lord, go ahead and pray with them, right? I mean, that's what they trained me to do, so that's what I did. And, and one day I was doing that, passing out tracts. You know, somebody, you know, came, took a tract. I said, can I ask you a question? 
And, uh, and she said, it was an old lady, how did you know I was Jewish? I didn't know she was Jewish, but you know. So it was an opportunity to talk. And I talked to her, and she was very ready to receive the Lord. In fact, she was looking for someone to tell her how to become a Christian. So I was, you know, I prayed with her, right? And, you know, she was rejoicing, and I was rejoicing. And there was somebody who was watching us. I didn't perceive it until she moved on. But he came right to me, and he wanted to know what happened. And I explained to him what we just did, and I asked him whether he also wanted to receive the Lord. And he said something like, not yet. Because he knew there was something in his life he was doing, there was a sin in his life that was not compatible with being a Christian. And he wasn't ready or willing to let that go. Now I think, and he may have said as much, that he was planning to do it later. I'll be a Christian later, right? Let me finish having my fun. And then when I'm done with it, then I'll become a Christian. And uh, I think that that's why the author has this warning here, because it says, you know, that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, there is no promise of tomorrow for the gospel. The Bible says, in an accepted time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If God brought you to this place and he is working in your heart and he is drawing you to him and you feel the opportunity to step forward and receive Christ, don't put it off to another day because there is no promise of another day. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that uh, he involved us in the work of the ages, the work of building his church. Lord, we uh, pray that you help us do the uh, kind of things you talked about in this passage, Lord, to live out our hearts for you and to uh, seek and, 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 and gain all those things that would be profitable for us and helpful for us in, in, uh, in, in this work, Lord, in being involved in the work of the ages of building your church. And we pray for anybody here who hasn't yet accepted that blessing of salvation, that you help them surrender to you and receive you today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.